0: Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast.
1: We are brothers.
0: We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. In this episode, the Brothers in Crime go back in time and revisit the 1892 murders of Andrew and Abby Borden. Their heads were bludgeoned with an axe inside their home on a warm summer morning in Massachusetts. Was the killer a crazed transient? An angry business associate? or their daughter. Today, we're talking about Lizzie Borden. Have you heard it before? Lizzie Borden took an axe. She's the one that makes the cheese. (laughs) I think there is a Borden Dairy Company. This is Borden of the, like, the whole line died with her because she was like a keep to herself, didn't have too many friends, never married kind of lady. But the old rhyme goes, Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. You ever heard that?
1: Oh, no, but sounds like a lovely person.
0: Yeah, so that's Lizzie, that's who we're talking about today. So Lizzie was born in July 1860, so this is pre-Civil War, in Fall River, Massachusetts. Her dad was Andrew Jackson Borden, not the seventh president, a different guy. And her biological mom was Sarah Anthony Borden. And then she had one living sister, Emma Lenora. They had another child who had passed away. And Lizzie's mom, Sarah, actually died when Lizzie was only three years old. Pretty small family.
1: Is there anybody else in the story we should know about?
0: In addition to the family members, there's somebody who's pretty important to this story. Her name is Bridget Maggie Sullivan. She went by Maggie and she had come to America from Ireland and she was their live-in maid. She was about 25 years old when all this went down. So roughly seven years younger than Lizzie. And like I said, she just, she was kind of like the live in maid, worked around the house, did all the stuff that they didn't want to do, basically. And then there's also John Morse, and he's Lizzie's uncle. And this is Lizzie's biological mother's brother. So Uncle John, Lizzie's uncle, mm-hmm. and it's her biological mom's brother. All right. So to talk a little bit about the Bordens. We'll start with Andrew. He had like a modest upbringing he had some pretty successful family members and stuff, but it's not like he he wasn't a Rockefeller, but he still, he managed to build a pretty impressive business empire over time. And interestingly enough, the thing that kind of propelled him into the business world was he became really well known. He made and sold caskets along with other furniture. So maybe that's a little, little foreshadowing there.
1: Okay. So Andrew, the casketeer, and that's Lizzie's dad.
0: Yes. Biological dad. Okay. Yeah, that's Papa Borden. And so he's the casket maker. And uh, so his casket furniture business takes off. He's a pretty shrewd business guy. So he starts using some of the money he's making off that. And he becomes a successful property developer. He ends up, he's the director of a textile mill. He owns some commercial properties. And then he's the president of the Union Savings Bank and the director at the Durfee Safe and Deposit Company. So this guy has got his hand in everything. He's a pretty well-known business guy in this part of the world. At his death, which was in 1892, his estate was worth about $300,000, which might not sound so impressive, or it might, depending on how much money you have in the bank. But in today's money, that would be worth nearly $10 million. Damn. So he was doing all right. <laughs> Despite being like pretty well off, he was really frugal. Everybody knew this guy was frugal. He was not about being flashy or spending the money. Instead of moving, opting to move into this fancier part of town, like the kind of up on the hill part Mm -hmm. of, of this area of Massachusetts, he decided to stay in the closer to the industrial area of town where more just regular folks lived. Their house, it wasn't particularly large for somebody of his wealth and his means. His house did not have indoor plumbing, even though pretty much all the wealthy people at that time had indoor plumbing in their house.
1: Even Warren Buffett has indoor plumbing.
0: He was very, very frugal from all accounts. So you got that going on, and money is going to be this thread that sort of weaves throughout this whole story, right? It's like the thing that's in the back of this whole ordeal. After Lizzie's biological mom dies, a few years later, Andrew remarries this woman named Abby Durfee Gray. And there seems to be no real dispute that Lizzie and her sister, Emma, weren't real fond of stepmom. I imagine that. Yeah, it's not too surprising.
1: How old was she when
0: mom died? Lizzie? Yeah. I think, I want to say she was like three years old. She was little. She was young. Let me confirm that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she was about three years old. And I think the older sister, Emma, I want to say she was maybe like 10. Okay. Yeah, because there was a bit of a gap between Lizzie and Emma. Lizzie was about three. I want to say Emma was roughly 10 years old when their biological mom passed. And it wasn't too long after that. Just a few years later, dad remarries. The lady he remarries, she's a few years younger than him. Maybe six or seven years younger.
1: Did Abby have any children prior to hooking up with Andrew?
0: If she did, they don't come up in any of the stuff that I've read about the case. So at least they, if she did, I don't think they were actively around or involved in falls river or or at least in what happened here
1: and where did abby come from
0: you know i'm not sure abby's background i know that andrew was of like welsh descent
1: no what i mean was abby a local local when she met andrew Yeah, yeah 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 so we got a bunch of mass holes and this irish person in one house okay did lizzie have any children
0: no and she never did
1: What about Emma?
0: I know to that point in time, Emma was also single and did not have any children. And like I said, so there's no dispute. There's no love loss between Lizzie, Emma, and their stepmom. They referred to her as Ms. Borden. They didn't call her by her first name. They didn't call her mom, nothing Hmm. like that. But what's interesting, though, is even though they were cold and there was no real relationship there... It seems that Andrew's new wife, Abby, was generally well regarded throughout town. So it wasn't like she was this evil spinster that came in. But there's some speculation and there's some anecdotal stuff that Lizzie always felt like Abby basically just hooked up with her dad for the money.
1: I ain't saying she a gold digger.
0: (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Money is this theme that kind of runs throughout this whole story.
1: Just because everybody in town thought this chick was awesome, who knows what she was like behind closed doors, that old Lizzie and sisters didn't like her. Or they might have just been jealous. Or, heck, maybe they were didn't want to give up any of the inheritance to come.
0: Exactly, yeah. And there's a lot of interesting stuff about that. This is a very famous trial. This is like the O.G. O.J. case, right? This really captivated the nation's attention when this all went down. It has a little bit of everything. You've got money. You've got this young lady who seems to be the most plausible suspect but at the same time people are kind of like how could she do it and everybody was just tuned into this case back in the 1890s it's interesting because there's a lot of speculation there's a lot of theories around this but there's not a whole lot of real hard evidence or proof forensics obviously not what it is today in 1892 the police investigation will get into that some that leaves a little bit to be desired And then you just have this townspeople talk and this kind of folklore about this case where, you know, there's interesting things that if that's true, then that makes this theory more likely. But if it's not, then blows it out of the water. So a lot of stuff like that. People in the town and in the family, the friends of the family, they all agreed that there had been some tension in the months leading up to the murders. There had been, talking about the inheritance stuff that you mentioned, Andrew had gifted some real estate to certain members of Abby's family, and it didn't sit well with Lizzie or or Emma. I mean, Abby is the wicked stepmother? Right, yes. So she's the possible gold digger. And some people in her family, not her, just some of her family members, Andrew starts gifting them some property. And Lizzie and Emma were not happy about this. So there had even been a a kind of a back and forth transfer of a rental property between Andrew and his daughters. This is Lizzie and Emma. He had given them this rental property that had actually been the property they had lived in with their biological mother. They had all lived there. And he transferred it to them for a dollar and then after some time just right before the murders just a few weeks before the murders the girls the daughters transferred it back to andrew and it's really unclear why that took place why it went back but according to some friends stories and stuff the reason that he transferred the property in the first place was because of their displeasure with him giving these properties to abby's family members so that's sort of what prompted the initial transfer but it's unclear why they transferred it back. There was really never an answer for that.
1: So he's given away property to evil stepmom's family, and Lizzie and Emma kind of get uptight about that, and they're like, what the hell? So he says, here, fine, I'll give you the house we used to live in, let's rent it out. And then for whatever reason, they give it back.
0: When they give it back, it's like <clears throat> just a few weeks before the murders happen.
1: Are Lizzie and her sister and dad, Andrew, and wicked stepmom, what's her name? abby abby wicked stepmom abby are they all living in the same house together
0: yeah they're in this relatively modest for wealthy people house it's a three-story house but they're all living together
1: how old was lizzie around this time
0: she's in her 30s she is single and has been single she lives with her dad and her stepmom in that society at that time that was really unusual
1: lizzie was in her 30s and the sister emma who was out of town during all this
0: she'd be late 30s or early 40s yeah Okay. Because she's about, I'd say seven, eight years so you old. So you have these two older.
1: girls that are still living at home in their 30s and 40s, which was...
0: Living off dad. And
1: they've got this maid living with them as well.
0: Yeah, and the maid, just keeping with the times, we're up in Massachusetts. She's an Irish immigrant, and she's their live-in maid. They've put her off on the third floor. She lives in what those kind of living expectations you would have back then. And it's questionable, you know, how well she was treated. The night before the murders occur, Lizzie's uncle, his uncle John, we talked about at the beginning, her biological mother's brother, he came for a visit that was supposedly related to property transfer. So again, we're getting back to this whole issue about what Andrew's doing with his property. And I should note, he was getting up there in age. He was about seven years old when this happened. So with that general background, let's set the scene, all right? We're at 232nd Street, Fall River, Massachusetts. That is the Borden house. It is still there. You can Google Earth it, even better. It's a tourist attraction. You can go take a tour. You can book a room. So if you're looking for something to do in Massachusetts, you could go spend the night in the room where uh, Lizzie Borden's dad or her stepmom were murdered with a hatchet. That was not an ad, but if you're really into this stuff, it's there. It's cool to have a website. Check it out. So
1: if you all that room today. Oh, that's a good question. Would it show up? I don't know.
0: I know they've done some renovations, but I also know that they've tried to keep it true to period. So somebody had to try that by now, right?
1: You know, I'm just curious because you see these things where these inept criminals attempt to use bleach or everything else. And then they come in with the luminol and ba-bam, there it is. You ain't hiding nothing unless you like remove the floorboards. And I don't know if painting over it works or not. I've never had to try and cover up.
0: You've never covered you up know, a murder?
1: Bloodstained evidence. Huh. Nothing I'm going to discuss here.
0: Yeah. Clearly, I picked the wrong guy to do a podcast with.
1: Yeah, just curious about that.
0: You could always make a trip to Massachusetts, book a room for a <clears throat> night, take some luminol, and you can find out.
1: It's possible. I don't know. I've been to Massachusetts once. I didn't lose a damn thing there.
0: <laughs> All right, it's August 4th, 1892. This is the day that the murders occur. It's warm. I think the high that day in Fall River was 83, according to historical records. Some newspaper articles would report or... Maybe not newspaper articles, but some of the like local folklore, more tabloid type things you'd see, and just the general oral history accounts. You see, oh, it was the hottest day of the year. It was over 100 degrees, all this stuff. And that comes into play later, especially as we look at Lizzie's alibi. But it wasn't the hottest day of the year. It was hot. It was 83. It was August. So, Uncle John, the guy who spent the night before, this is Lizzie's uncle who was her biological mother's brother. He gets up and he leaves in the morning, just before nine o'clock. What he was doing cracked me up and made me think of Oregon Trail. He went to go buy a pair of oxen and he was going to visit his niece different times for sure. Now we're left with Andrew, Abby, Lizzie. Emma is out of town, so Emma's not in the house at this point in time. She was out of town visiting a family, I believe. So we've got the live-in maid, Maggie, and dad, stepmom, and Lizzie. Now that John has left the house, we've got four people. Shortly after John leaves, Andrew goes out for his morning walk, as a 70-year-old man would do. Now, sometime between 9 a.m. and 10.30, Abby, the stepmom, is up in the guest room, supposedly to make the bed, but there's different versions or stories for what she was doing in that room. What about the maid? Why wouldn't the maid be making the bed? These are great questions. So she's up in the guest room. That much we know for certain. Why she's there, who knows? Now, it's during this period that she's up in the guest room that she's murdered. The only people home at that time were Lizzie and Maggie. Maggie, at this point, was still outside washing the windows. The forensic investigation at the time that this occurred, which is limited in scope and what they could accomplish, but they could figure some things out. Somehow, they concluded that uh, Abby, that she was facing her attacker at the time she was attacked, which is interesting because the autopsy noted that there were no wounds to the front of her body. She was struck in the head with a hatchet. The first blow cut her just above the ear and caused her to fall to the floor. When she fell to the floor, she sustained contusions on her nose and forehead from the fall. Then she was struck 17 more times with the weapon on the back of her head. She's been hit 18 times with what they think is a hatchet. She's very dead.
1: They believe the first blow came from the front, but it was over the ear. The first strike was the side of the head?
0: All the wounds, other than what they think she sustained from falling down, are on the either side or back of her head. They thought that she faced her attacker initially. I think that there must be some other evidence there that I was unable to find that led them to believe that. But my guess is that she's facing her attacker. The attacker raises the hatchet. She turns to, to get away. And then that's when she's attacked. In the autopsy report, which I was able to find, it indicated that there were no marks of violence on the front of the body. Her autopsy was performed a week after she died. It was done just after they finished doing Andrew's autopsy. It was performed by W.A. Dolan, a medical examiner, and Dr. F.W. Draper. I gotta get my initials going. In the autopsy, they noted that there's a body of a female, very well-nourished, and very fleshy, 64 years of age. I'm not sure what very fleshy means, but...
1: Does that mean was like a full-figured gal?
0: I, I read it like three times and I put it in my notes in quotes fleshy. because I was hoping with your background, maybe you could help me understand what very fleshy means. But
1: You're not big, you're fleshy.
0: Big bone? Are, aren't we all kind of fleshy? Mm. I, I don't know, but uh, we'll have to check that out. So she was five foot three, so she's a little on the shorter side. They noted she was struck 18 times. Again, no marks of violence on the front of her body. Now getting into the description of some of the wounds, it said on the back of the head, the first wound. A glancing scalp wound two inches in length by one and a half inches in width, about three inches above left ear hole, cut above downward, and did not penetrate the skull. The second wound, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk about all of these, I'm just gonna talk about the ones that are a little bit more interesting. The second wound noted in the autopsy was exactly on top of the skull, one inch long, into but not through the skull. So at least the way they documented these, the first one is this one that seems like it's in line with these investigators' theory that she turned turned from the attacker. The attacker hits her kind of on the side of her head, right there above her ear hole. And then the next one is directly on top of her skull. So if it's
1: above the left ear hole and it sounds like it's going vertical...
0: Yeah, that's correct.
1: My first thought was their theory in the face-to-face thing would be if you're facing someone, you've got a hatchet in your hand, you're right-handed, and swing out from the side and come in, you clock them on the side of the head with this thing. But that wouldn't create a vertical wound. So that's interesting.
0: Yeah, and then this one that's directly on top of the head, I thought that was interesting too. It made me wonder, is she on her knees at that point? Is she at some state that's a little different? It just seemed mm-hmm. weird that that was the next one.
1: What makes us think that this wound above the ear hole was the first?
0: That's how it's documented in the autopsy. They number them, and they seem to number them in a way that would lead you to think that this is in order of either how they believe it happened. It didn't seem to be in severity. It seemed to jump around a little bit. And it didn't seem to go directly, like, in a line across—I'm not entirely sure—how they number these in the autopsy. And it's 1892.
1: Medicine in 1892 was (laughs) sketchy as hell. Just to put this in perspective, this is 50 years before— we started performing lobotomies.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So the cutting edge, we're on the cutting edge, literally right here. Yeah. And I'm just going to talk about a couple more of these. Uh, The third one they noted is parallel to number two, but this one penetrated through the skull. So again, we're at top of the skull and we're parallel to the second incision or wounds that they've noted. Four through six is just more of the same stuff. Nothing really remarkable. But number seven notes, that one is two inches long, about two inches behind the ear hole. Crushing and carrying bone into the brain, wounds eight through 18 incised, crushed through into the brain, and then those eight through 18 were all about two and a half to three and a half inches in length. And finally, there's a note that there was a four and a half by five and a quarter inch hole in the right side of Abby's skull. There's a lot of damage there. We're talking 18 times with a hatchet or some instrument like that.
1: It sounds like 10 or 12 of those, any one would have been fatal.
0: Yeah, for sure. The
1: other ones, maybe not.
0: Yeah, I think especially this couple where it's clearly going through. This is personal. It's messy. I mean, just think about how messy that would be. It would just be a bloodbath. Absolutely bloodbath. Remember, now you've got Maggie says she's outside cleaning windows. This is going down on the second floor in a guest room. I'm going to get to where Lizzie is during this, but just keep in mind that she is around the house, while this is happening but apparently doesn't know that this has happened about 10:30, that's when andrew returns from his morning 70 uh, year old man stroll we know that he returned around 10 30 because maggie says so so take that for what it's worth and she says that his key didn't work to unlock the door so she had to open it for him and when she opened it the door was stuck a little that's part of why in her mind it's all kind of stuck out to her
1: how's she opening the door if she's outside washing windows
0: at this point, she's inside the house.
1: Okay, so she had been washing windows. Now she's inside to answer the door, and he comes back. Why is he got to lock his door in 1892 at 9, 10 o'clock in the morning?
0: We don't know if he locked the door or they locked the door, but part of this urban legend of this is, you know, around this time, there was uh, talk about how certain people might want to do him harm. Abby had confided in a friend that she had some concerns that something bad was going to happen. And then Maggie actually had told a friend the day before, I believe, That she just had this awful feeling that something really bad was going to happen. Did that mean she knew she was going to kill him and she's setting up a thing? Or is that real? I don't know. So that could help to explain why these folks have their door locked at that time of the morning. Or Maggie and Lizzie were doing some murdering and they locked the door so nobody would walk in on them.
1: Or, heck, maybe there were some kind of relationships in that house. Yeah. So Abby, the wicked stepmother, she's all cut up in the head up in the second floor guest room. Andrew, the dad of Lizzie, comes home. Maggie lets him in the house.
0: And then here we go. So Maggie says she took off Andrew's boots and helped him into his slippers before he laid down on the sofa for a nap. But in the crime scene photo of Andrew Borden, his boots are still on his feet. So if she took his boots off and put his slippers on, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense.
1: So he can go out for a walk for an hour and a half, but he needs help getting from his boots to his slippers. And if she's going to do that kind of work as the maid, but she's not the one making the bed upstairs, so many questions.
0: Yeah, there's lots of questions, right? There's going to be more questions. Just wait. There's plenty more to come. Maggie supposedly tells Lizzie about a department store sale, and then she went up to the third floor where her little live-in maid quarters room was. Even though Lizzie was home for both of the murders, the alibis that she gives the investigators, they're just kind of weird. She says she didn't hear her father or her stepmother being murdered with a hatchet. We're going to get into this a little more later, but I just want to really point that out. So Lizzie's here. She's around the house. Her stepmother has been murdered. You've got a body hitting the floor in the guest room because it's upstairs on the second floor. And her body is found face down on the floor. And then she's been whacked with a hatchet several more times after that. So this wouldn't have been quiet. One of the things that Maggie says at one point is she hears Lizzie laughing from the second floor shortly before Andrew comes home, which the investigators point out, if she would have been on the second floor and awake at all, she would have had to have seen the dead stepmom. The investigators said that if you went to the top of the stairs at all, there's no way you couldn't see her dead body there. Now, just before 1110 that morning from the main floor, Lizzie yelled, Maggie, come quick. Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. Who
1: says that? Whose story is
0: that? That's what Maggie says Lizzie yelled. And yeah. I don't think Lizzie denied that. Lizzie's like, yeah, that's, that's what I yelled. So the guy across the street from the Borden house, his name was Seabury Warren Bowen, and he was a doctor. He was actually their family physician. He lived across the street from the Bordens.
1: That's convenient.
0: That's pretty great. They run over and they get him and he comes over. He's one of the first people to the scene the medical examiner and the doctors involved in the case all agree that andrew was killed at least an hour after abby and the basis for this is that when dr bowen came over to the house andrew's body was still warm and he described it as his blood was still flowing while abby's body was already cool Based on that, it was his opinion that she had been dead for at least an hour before Andrew had died.
1: I'd like to know a little bit more about the blood evidence. Obviously, it would be great if Dr. Henry Lee, he was (laughs) real close by there in Connecticut. Of course, he hadn't been born (laughs) yet, but he could tell us about some of the blood evidence, too. But in an hour's time difference, you would certainly expect to see some differences in the blood around Abby than Andrew. But he only describes Andrew's blood as flowing, which we can take to mean it hadn't coagulated.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When I read it and just based on the pictures of what, particularly like what Andrew's face looked like, the vibe I get is that when he says that he means when he walks up and sees him and sees the wounds, things are still, it hasn't gotten sticky yet. It's still very much liquidy Mm -hmm. where when he saw Abby, I'm guessing it was more sticky. Coagulated would be the fancy word you used. It's ugly. It's a mess. You can see the blood spatter on the wall. It is quite a scene, and it's the kind of scene that you look at and you go, well, surely anybody who did this, whoever killed these people, I don't know if they'd have to be covered in blood, but they'd certainly have some blood on them.
1: Was he on the floor or was he on the...
0: Maggie's story was that he had laid down to take his nap, and he was on a sofa. One thing that some people have pointed out, uh, this guy was notoriously frugal. He reused clothes. He wasn't a guy that had 10 suits or whatever. And uh, in the picture, he's laying on this sofa and kind of behind the pillow folded up is a suit jacket sort of tucked under. It's just kind of recently been placed there, but it's just in a way that if you're the kind of guy who's constantly wearing that stuff, the way that he was, you wouldn't expect him to treat his stuff that way. All right. The autopsy was performed a week after Andrew's death. It was completed at 1115 in the morning. The autopsy noted that they had a body of a man well-nourished. He was five foot eleven, with no marks of violence on the body, but on the left side of the head and face, there were numerous incised wounds and one contused wound penetrating into the brain. They documented various incisions and there were 10 specific notes to line up with the 10 times that he was struck with the, what they believed was a hatchet. The first one they noted was four inches long, beginning at the lower border of the left nasal bone and reaching to the lower edge of lower jaw cutting through nose, upper lip, lower lip, and slightly into bone of upper and lower jaw. It's a pretty significant blow. The second note says that that one began at the internal angle of eye and extended to one and three-eighths inch of lower edge of jaw was four and a half inches long the next one began two inches above upper eyelid through middle of left eyebrow through the eyeball cutting it completely in two halves and those were the most significant out of the ten that i thought were worth noting the autopsy noted that all of the wounds were generally parallel to one another and looking at the picture you can see that they line up they are pretty parallel lizzie when the investigators come and they question her okay you've been here all morning and there's two dead people in your house. Like, how'd that happen? What do you know? The officers, they were very frustrated with her answers. They felt like she was evasive, that she answered questions, but did it in a way that was clearly like she she kind of had an attitude and she was hiding something or that she just wasn't being fully forthright. She told the police that she had been out in the barn looking for sinkers and eating pears. When the cops went out there, the loft, the barn that she had said she had been in for quite some time. It was particularly warm because it had been a hot day and it was up in the top. So they thought that would be an odd place for somebody to just hang out. But that was her reasoning for how she must have not heard these murders taking place. She also reported being in the home's attic or on that third floor at one point. And so she sort of gave these reasons, but her reasons for being in those places didn't really make sense.
1: And at no time did she walk past the exsanguinating corpse
0: of Abby on the second floor, didn't hear it. Kind of describing how the police felt. And then she's like, well, no, I just must have been in the barn. Now, just to make the whole thing a little more bizarre, uh... Not too long after this, there is a murder that occurs. I don't want to say completely similarly, but with a hatchet, it turns out that that murder was committed by an immigrant, which at that time, they just weren't treated right at all. Uh, And they were often scapegoats for many things. But people started to wonder, maybe this guy was the same guy who did the Borden murders and maybe he hung out in the house for an hour and a half and for whatever reason killed these two people but eventually they're able to figure out that he either wasn't in the country at the time or he was somewhere so far away that it was impossible that he could have been the person who murdered the bordens but in society in that time once that happened people started to feel like oh it was probably that guy because this young woman who was part of this rich family like there's no way she killed her dad with an axe or a hatchet or whatever she's a woman she's wealthy yeah, she just would never do that. That would never happen. That was some people's approach was, oh my gosh, that just, that's impossible. That can't happen. Lizzie and Maggie are clearly the two easiest suspects. I'm not saying they did it, but they're there. And they're the only people who are at the house when both these murders occur. Some people who really look at this case, they say maybe the maid killed them because she was mad because it was hot and they made her go clean the windows after she'd just gotten over being sick because everybody in the house had been sick, which I think is ridiculous because if that's the kind of work you're doing, you're probably not fly off the handle and lose it and go murder a couple people at the hatchet because you got to clean some windows on a hot day. That's not the thing that's going to, you know, break the camel's back
1: windows are a bitch i get it made I, I don't want to be a maid so it's 83 was that the temperature at 10 o'clock in the morning
0: that was the high for the day
1: yeah so it's not 83 at 10 o'clock it was probably a decent weather to be outside doing windows quite honestly it probably wasn't awful if 83 is what it gets to at four or five in the afternoon it's probably 70 and the- so it's probably decent weather to be outside but okay
0: so in addition to kind of the folklore around this case with maggie there's tons of it with lizzie too Supposedly, in May of 1892, Andrew killed a bunch of pigeons that were in his barn with a hatchet, according to some people. Others say that that was a telephone version where that's not really what happened. It turned into that, but that he rang their necks. And Regardless, it seems to be that, that there's at least some shred of truth to this, that he had killed some pigeons in his barn. And there are varying accounts for why he did this. Some, they would have these pigeons and they would kill them and eat them. So they were for food. That seems to be undisputed that that happened from time to time. But then there was also some versions of the story say that he was getting rid of them because they were creating a nuisance, that kids in the neighborhood were coming around because of the pigeons or whatever. But it appears that sometime before that, Lizzie had built a roost for the birds. And that when her father killed the birds on this particular occasion, it had, for whatever reason, it had upset her. But in a book by Sarah Miller that was put out in 2016 called The Borden Murders, Lizzie Borden, and the Trial of the Century, the author there says that this account about the death of the pigeons is really unfounded and has just become part of the myth. So it's out there. People disagree about how accurate it is or... What the motivations were. what
1: it's got to do with anything. The pigeons could have just been an annoyance. Anybody that's ever lived in the city knows that pigeon shit is no fun. You know, or maybe said this guy was cheap. Maybe these were just food.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: I don't know what pigeon tastes like, but I know if you put enough honey mustard or Polynesian sauce on it, it's probably delicious.
0: And it's funny you bring up the food because this guy was notoriously cheap. And just prior to the murders, like the week before, everybody that lived in this house, everybody was violently ill. And one of the family friends believed that it was food poisoning from eating some meat, I think it was mutton, that had been cooked on Wednesday and then had been left out for meals over the course of several days and that it had spoiled and that that's what had made everybody sick. Uh, So we got that going on. But wait, there's more, okay? Abby, this is stepmom, she suspected or feared that maybe someone had poisoned them. And her fear was based on the fact that there were people who didn't like Andrew he wasn't necessarily the most popular person in town. Of course, he's got all this money. He's super frugal. He didn't throw parties. He wasn't somebody that everybody wanted to hang out with. He just was like that really shrewd businessman that did his own thing and kept to himself in that way. Was he sharing any of his money? Not in a way that would make you a bunch of friends. We'll put it that way.
1: So he wasn't, uh, he didn't have the Andrew Borden Foundation. He wasn't. The... Yeah,
0: this isn't Carnegie. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we don't have that. But then, wait, there's more. It's like an infomercial. About a week before the murders take place, Lizzie made herself a little trip to the drugstore to see the druggist and asked for some prussic acid, which is poison that has some other uses. But when questioned by the police, she said that it was to clean her furs. There was one of the guys in the town who's an expert in this area said, no, mm, yeah, that's not, you wouldn't use that for that. That doesn't make any sense. Cleaning the furs. The police felt pretty good that, okay, we have her, here she is. Within a week of these murders, She's trying to get this particular type of poison. The family then becomes violently ill for a few days. At the heels of that, as soon as that's over, then Abby and Andrew are hacked up and murdered. In the basement of the home, officers noted that there was a metal pail that had bloody rags in it or bloody cut up clothing, something like that. They didn't check it too carefully because Lizzie said that those were her menstrual rags and the police officers quickly just beelined away from it and they didn't
1: want no parts of that
0: didn't even consider it after that also there was uncontroverted evidence that lizzie had burned a dress on the stove after the murders happened and when asked why she said because it had paint on it even though in their house it would have been really weird to do that because they saved all of their old clothes and they reused stuff but at this point frugal papa ain't there no more so if she want to burn her clothes i guess she could burn her clothes sounds sketchy. She was really into the theater. She attended it on a regular basis. And there was this one actress she was particularly fond of, supported through some parties for. There was speculation that that actress might have been either lesbian or just had an alternative lifestyle that maybe wasn't appropriate for society at that point in time. And so had to basically hide that And so there was a lot of speculation that maybe that was what was going on with Lizzie too, that maybe that played into this as well, that there was a lack of acceptance that created some of the issues that made the weird family dynamic. There's a lot of money on the line. There's a lot of family dynamics. Some people hypothesize that Andrew favored Lizzie in a way that's highly inappropriate and illegal. There is undisputed that she gave her father a gold band when she was a young teenager, when she was about 14 years old. And some people suspect that based on everything in this case, that perhaps Andrew was abusing Lizzie or that they had some other form of incestuous and improper relationship. Wow. And maybe that's part of why Abby, the new stepmom, and Lizzie didn't get along so well. There's also the notion that perhaps Lizzie was just looking... To claim her inheritance a bit early and to not share it with stepmom, the way that the law works, it's of the utmost importance that Abby dies first. Because had Andrew died first and Abby died second, the estate would have passed from Andrew to Abby and then from Abby to her heirs.
1: Which may not have included Lizzie and...
0: Emma, right. the other sister. Exactly. And even if she didn't have a will and it just went through intestate succession or whatever the state had at that time, mm-hmm. there was a big chance she would have gotten nothing. Because Andrew died second, Lizzie and her sister Emma were the sole heirs of his estate.
1: To have so many questions here. I mean, it sounds like obviously the prime suspects are the two people that are still alive in the house, Lizzie or Maggie. But did Uncle John sneak in a back door? Maybe he really didn't leave. I don't know. The mailman did it. Mm-hmm. But Wow, so many more questions.
0: There's so much. You could take it so many different ways. You know, is dad the evil, molesting, incestuous father? Or is she a lesbian and he doesn't approve of that and he's treating her bad that way? Or is none of that true? Because there's hints and things that can lead you that direction, but there's no proof of any of that. Or is it just one is money? You know, and he's a very frugal, tight old man. And so she decides enough with that and I'm going to have it all for myself. Or is she actually innocent? Or is it just some random dude who comes in, or is this a conspiracy between Lizzie and Maggie? Maybe Lizzie and Maggie are more than friends, and then they've right. come up with this plan. Or maybe they're just partners in crime.
1: <laughs> right? They see a paycheck, and maybe neither one of them are fond of old daddy tightwad and the evil stepmom. There's just been a whole lot of weird in this whole mess. We're talking about the trial in the next episode, but is there really anything left to talk about?
0: This kind of just scratches the surface. The case only gets more weird, bizarre, and interesting from this point on.
1: Oh, wow. You want to give us a few hints?
0: One of Lizzie's defense attorneys was formerly the governor of Massachusetts. So you got some heavy hitters in this case. They paraded Andrew and Abby's skulls in the courtroom during the trial. No kidding. Just some bizarre stuff. Of course, her jury was made up of 12 old guys with some really impressive mustaches. I'll say, too, that what Lizzie does after this all settles down definitely doesn't do anything to dispel the notion that maybe she was after her dad's money, because she immediately moves up to the fancy part of town on the hill, buys a much bigger house, and lives a much better life as soon as she has his money.
1: Ah, I see. So, circumstantial as it is, she does the original Scott Peterson.
0: Yeah, it's exactly what what you would expect if you're thinking she's just looking to get a payday
1: hey thanks for hanging out with us on the brothers in crime podcast feedback and suggestions are always welcome for links and resources related to this episode please see the show notes or visit us at brothers we hope you'll save subscribe or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode good show good show somebody bring me a beer